Okay, fellow students, if you would turn to Revelation 22 at long last, we're actually going to finish the book. We've been here for about eight and a half months or so. Uh, we could spend a lot of time, but we one of, one of the missions of this class is to really teach the whole counsel of God. We're following a pattern Lifeway puts out that if you stay with us for eight years, we will literally teach through from Genesis to Revelation. And part of the part of my mission is to literally expose you to all of biblical truth. We did skip a couple of sessions uh, that because they only gave us 12 weeks to be in Revelation, and we couldn't even get through the first couple of chapters. So uh, we're going to start in Acts, Lord willing, and let's finish Revelation at this point in time. Go to chapter 22. This begins the epilogue. Uh, actually, we're going to start in verse 6, and if you notice, the epilogue of Revelation is very much like the prologue of Revelation. They really are bookends. Revelation 1.1. The opening verses of this book says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bond servants the things which must shortly take place. Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in this book for the time is near. Now, if you go to chapter 22, verse 6 and 7, where we're going to start today, it sounds remarkably similar. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Verse 7, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So we have a promise for not just knowing and understanding what Revelation says, we have a promise for heeding and obeying, and we're going to talk about that. Let's go to verse 6. It says, These words are faithful and true. God is attesting to the authenticity of what John has seen. Everything that John has seen in Revelation is accurate and factual. It's not a mystery. It's not a dream. John's not been hallucinating. Revelation is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not the product of human imagination. This book is not symbolic imagery. It is literal, prophetic truth precisely due to be completed on God's calendar. By the way, for those of you that are wondering, God has a very good track record at fulfilled prophecy. The Old Testament lists 330 specific prophecies that were fulfilled 400 years later at the first advent of the Messiah when Jesus Christ came the first time. He fulfilled over 330 specific prophecies. Now the theme of the book of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies that relate to the second coming of Christ. And the same God who fulfilled 100% of the promises for the first coming is going to do exactly the same thing on the second coming. So we absolutely know that it is certain. What is uncertain is the timing. John is told that the timing of Jesus' return is quickly, is soon, is shortly. Notice in verse 7, in verse 12, and in verse 20, they say the same thing three times. Behold, I am coming quickly. Three times. When God repeats something three times, he's emphasizing it. He's emphasizing it. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Here's the principle. In light of Jesus' imminent return, we are called to worship God and obey his word. We are called to worship God and obey his word. I am coming quickly. It literally means I am presently coming. The emphasis is on the impending arrival of a journey that has already begun. 
It's almost like somebody calls you from out of town and says, I'm coming soon. Where are you? Well, I'm on the way. I'm journeying and I will arrive shortly. Now, this is the doctrine of imminence. It says there, Jesus is imminently coming. It means that it's certain that he's coming, but it's uncertain when he is coming. When you see the word quickly, it literally means without delay, without delay. It means that when everything is in place, Jesus will return without delay. Actually, there is nothing on God's prophetic calendar that has yet to take place before Jesus comes back. There is nothing on God's prophetic calendar that is unfulfilled before his return. What's interesting is Dave just gave me a little book on uh, Daniel's great prophecy. This was written in the 1890s. And this individual believed strongly and taught of the return of Jesus Christ that was predicated on Israel's regathering into the land. They haven't even been in the land yet. They didn't get there until 1948. The great British pastor Spurgeon absolutely taught that Israel was going back to the land and it was 75 years before they showed up because he took God seriously. And all of a sudden in 1948, when God brings Israel back in the land, people go, whoa, whoa, I guess God keeps his word. Yes, he does. Not one yacht or one tittle will remain unfulfilled. So Jesus Christ can come back and rapture his church anytime. As a matter of fact, I can tell you exactly when Jesus will return. Jesus will return exactly on schedule. <laughs> His schedule, not our schedule. It's interesting, the Bible records that Jesus Christ the first time was born when? In the fullness of time. Whose time? God's time, not our time. The Greek word here quickly, he's repeated three times. The Greek word is taku, T-A-C-H-U. You know what we get from that? Tachometer, you know what a tachometer does? It measures engine speed. You also can call it tachycardia, which measures heart rate. When you're looking at someone you love, you should get a little tachycardia, right? Your heart should pump a little faster, right? You're looking at me like, I have no idea what tachycardia is. Do any of you exercise? Okay, look at the grandchildren, not the spouse. I mean, do the grandchildren make your heart go pump, 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 right? Okay. So we know that if something is certain to happen soon, but we don't know exactly when it's going to happen, the prudent and wise thing would be what? Prepare. Get ready for the inevitable. Now, I want you to know that getting ready is easy. You know what's difficult? Staying ready. Staying ready. In Kentucky, there's a home for developmentally delayed children that's operated by a Christian family. They care for these special little boys and girls and they teach them that Jesus loves them and they also teach that one day Jesus is coming back for them. They report that they're having a hard time keeping the window planes clean in this house because these little boys and girls are constantly putting their hands and their faces up against the glass looking for Jesus to return. That should be us. We should have our face on the window pane. We should be living life Always looking up, always expecting him to come back soon because he's promised that. Now, the church has been waiting for how long? Almost 2,000 years. And, you know, from a human perspective, 2,000 years doesn't sound like shortly, right? That's a long time. 
But Peter tells us from God's point of view, a thousand years is like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. So from God's perspective, Jesus has just ascended into heaven two days ago. Like 2,000 years, a couple days, right? From God's perspective, not our perspective, and that's the one we need to have. Our attitude should be like the Apostle Paul's when he wrote in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be eagerly waiting. James 5 tells us it's hard to do that. He says, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And he gives us a metaphor. He says, behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. How many of you have ever gardened? Okay. When you garden, you will learn patience, right? Because when you put the seed in, it takes time for the plant to grow, right? Let me ask you another question. How many of you have ever studied for a test? Be honest. How many, yeah, 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 ha, yeah. How many of you ever waited till the last minute and crammed for the test? All right, just, just establishing a little baseline here. One thing about gardening or farming, you cannot cram for the crop. If you put the seeds in the ground, you know, two weeks before you expect the harvest, and you do a lot of fertilizing and watering, it ain't gonna help, right? You got to give it time. It takes time. And James says, be patient. The Lord is coming back. Be patient. Wait like the farmer waits. So we've got two things we're supposed to be doing here. We're supposed to be eagerly looking forward to Jesus coming back with our face on the window pane. And at the same time, we're supposed to be patient and enduring, waiting for him to come back. You know, the tougher our lives are here, the more eager we get for him to come back. The better our lives are here, the less eager we get to wait. So I think sometimes the Lord puts things in our lives to says, look up, look up, I'm coming back. So it's a difficult combination to be eager and patient. You know, this is, we live in such an instant gratification society, it's like microwave popcorn. Waiting for Jesus to come back is like deep pit barbecue. It takes time, it takes time, but it's worth it. It's worth it, the wait is worth it. You know, if you're gonna microwave something or you're gonna deep pit, you know it's worth the wait. Kind of like when you're engaged to be married, you're eagerly waiting for your wedding day, but you also need to be patient, right? Be patient. So the reality is we're going to meet Jesus face to face. We just don't know the meeting date. Jesus could rapture the church today. Amen. He could rapture you through death. That's not the same word, I understand, but he could take you home today. All right? So the truth is, we could be meeting Jesus, it's certain, but the timing is not certain. The best way to be prepared is to be knowing his word and obeying his word. Jesus said, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy, this book. Now that's a conditional promise. It says you will experience blessing if you heed. Now the word heed means to watch over, to guard to keep, to obey, to hold fast, to possess, to protect. It's far more than just hearing and understanding. I know most of you now, after eight months, have a bit more understanding about Revelation, but you don't get blessed for knowing. None of you are going to get any blessing for taking notes. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take notes. Take notes. Take lots of notes. Because if you remember it, you'll have a higher probability of obeying it. 
If you can't remember, it's pretty tough to obey what you do not know, right? So when he says heed the words of this prophecy, it means obey it, but it also means guard it. This text has been tampered with by speculation, by erroneous interpretation, by human fantasy like you can't believe. It means we have to defend a biblically sound, literal interpretation, not just of Revelation, but all of Scripture. If there's any book that needs a literal interpretation, this is the book, right? It's subject to a lot of distortion at that point. But he also says, you also are commanded to apply the lessons of Revelation to our life, which means we need to not just know, we have to do. It does no good to know that diet and exercise are essential to good health if you don't actually do something about it, right? You actually have to practice them. Verse eight, I, John, <clears throat> am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. See, John would have been a very reliable witness in a court of law, because he's what we call an eyewitness. He was someone who was actually there, who heard and saw, he was an eyewitness to these events, and he was so overwhelmed with the enormity of what he had seen that he fell down to worship. I don't think John intended to worship the angel. I think he was overwhelmed by the enormity of the vision of the future he saw, and that's very, very common in Scripture. When Isaiah saw his vision of heaven in Isaiah 6, what did he do? fell down and worshiped. When Ezekiel got exposed to the enormity of heaven, he fell down and worshiped. So this is a very common practice. But the angel rebukes him, and this is the second time this has happened at that point. The angel says in verse 9, do not do that. <clears throat> Don't fall down and worship. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. What's the last two words of that verse? <laughs> worship God. You can write after that only only. It's an exclusive. Now here's the reality. Everyone worships someone or some things. We all are created by God to worship. But God alone is the creator and everything else is created so God alone is to be worshipped. Our culture loses track of this. If you watch human behavior during the Super Bowl, you realize that people worship a lot of stuff besides Jesus Christ, right? right. I mean, there's a lot of passion. And I'm not against passion. I'm just saying don't cross the line between passion and worship. Do not worship Mary. Do not venerate human saints. I'm not saying you shouldn't learn from the saints of God that have gone before, but this veneration business is right on the borderline of worship. Do not pray to the dead. They're dead. Do not pray for the dead. They're dead, right? You're supposed to pray to who? Jesus, only in his name. Fix your eyes on Jesus, worship him. You don't pray to angels. The angel says, worship God alone. What do, who are angels? What did the angels say they were? What did they say we are? What do we do? Angels are servants. Now, there's an interesting word before servants. What is it? Fellow servants, if they're a fellow servant with the saints, what does that make you? A servant. Wow. Do you know what a servant does? Whatever they're told. <laughs> See, we like this notion of servants. We like to have them. We don't like to be them. And yet, it's a phenomenal privilege to be a servant of the Most High God. 
angels spend their entire existence serving Jesus Christ and serving the saints. And that's what you and I will do through all of glory. A servant, here's what a servant does. A servant creates value for the benefit of another. A servant creates value, or if you want to put it in the more colloquial, a servant performs work for the benefit of another. But the whole essence of a servant is the other. It's all about the other. How many of you have seen Downton Abbey? <clears throat> yeah, Marin, where are you? Marin loves that show. It's, it's all about others. It's all about creating value for others. And we have a privilege, a great, great privilege to serve the Most High God. Now, Jesus is speaking next, the object of our worship in verse 10. And he said, Jesus said to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy as a book for the time is near. Revelation is not a secret. It is not to be sealed. It is not to be hidden. It is meant to be taught. This book is supposed to be proclaimed. This book is supposed to be understood and obeyed. It's not a mysterious code book. It's not incomprehensible. God has told us in this book the future in advance. Now, why would God tell us the future in advance? To impact the way we live today. Would it be important for you to read the book of Revelation and understand that God wins in the end? Would it, why would that be important? It would give you hope today to say, I carry on because I know that at the end of the day, God runs the universe and everything will be subjected to him and Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. That's essential for our faith. Let me give you an example. If you're planning on driving to LAX during the winter to catch a flight, would it be useful information to know that the CHP has go, closed the grapevine because of snow or accident? That would be useful information, right? So you can make alternative plans. You can plan accordingly. Since God loves us, he wrote the end of the story up front. He told us, here's what's going to happen in the end so that your faith can be prepared and so that you can make right decisions and live in terms of the obedience I've commanded you. However, not everyone responds to God's plan with obedience. Look at verse 11. This is a very interesting verse and a very difficult one. Verse 11 says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. So this is both a paradox, it's also a principle. It's a paradox that the same gospel of Jesus Christ will draw some and repel others. Same gospel will draw some and repel others. The same gospel will save some and it hardens others. When people encounter the gospel, Everyone has a response to that gospel. Some people respond to the gospel by obeying it, right? Say yes. You were some of the ones that had a response to the gospel by obedience. Does everybody have a response to the gospel by means of obedience? No, some people reject it, yes. Do you know anybody who's rejected the gospel? It's the same gospel. So how come they rejected it and how come you responded to it? We're going to talk about that. The word still here, you can write more, more. 
Let the one who is filthy be more filthy. Let the one who is holy be more holy. Let the one who is righteous be more righteous. Here's the point. When you're wrong in this life, you're more wrong in eternity. When you're holy in this life, you're more holy in eternity. Here's the point. In this life, we have good and evil, godliness and evil coexisting on the same plane, right? Right? We have God's people and we have Satan's people on the same planet. So if you're evil, you have exposure to good because God still has his church on planet Earth. That's part of your job is to be salt and light, right? In hell, will there be any of God's people? Will there be any good at all? It'll be unmitigated evil. What John is saying here, what the Holy Spirit is saying through John is, if you're wicked in this life, you're going to be more wicked there because there's no salt, there's no light, there's no holiness, there's no Jesus, there's no Holy Spirit, there's no God's people. It's just evil. Now in heaven, it's the same thing. Are there any, is there any evil in heaven? There's only good. So if you're holy in this life, when you get to heaven, you're going to be more holy. There'll be no temptation. There'll be no corruption. There'll be no disobedience. Here's a principle that really is a bit terrifying. When you refuse to obey the truth, you know the truth, you refuse to obey it. Your ability to respond to it is progressively degraded. When you refuse, I didn't give this to Rob, when you refuse to obey the truth, your ability to respond to it is progressively degraded. Very few people come to Christ late in life. Very, very few people come to Christ late in life. See, sin blinds, correct? A lifetime of sin really progressively blinds people to the truth. The more you choose to sin today, the more comfortable you will be, you will be sinning tomorrow. People who are comfortable in their sin today are probably going to become more comfortable tomorrow. Satan's message, of course, encourages that because he said, just sin today, you can get right with God later. Later. Satan's plan for hell is very simple. Manana. Manana. Get right with God when? Tomorrow. Later. You can deal with it later. In the meanwhile, enjoy yourself today. When you refuse to do what you know is right, you lose your ability to do what is right. That's why sin is so corrupting, and that's why you should have zero tolerance with sin in your life, because the more you practice sin, you know something? The more comfortable you get at it. And the more you, you rationalize it and you lie to yourself that it's okay. And then you put out your own eyes so you can't even see it anymore. Have you ever talked to someone who was deep in sin and had no clue that they were doing it? I mean, they did. They drunk the Kool-Aid, as we say about Jim Jones. You know, they drunk the Kool-Aid. With truth, you either lose it or you lose it. You use it or you lose it. It's like a two-pack-a-day smoker who says, <clears throat> you ever talk to somebody? I can quit any time. I just don't choose to quit. I don't have a problem. Anyone with any kind of addiction who says, I can stop anytime. You know what I've noticed about addicts? They never get around to stopping. I can do it anytime I want. They just never get around to doing it, right? My father knew that smoking was bad. He advised me not to smoke in 1968. Guess what? Dad continued to smoke till 1989 when he killed him. And he knew. He knew up front 
that it wasn't the right thing to do. I had a friend who knew he was marrying the wrong person, knew it would end badly, walked down the aisle knowing that this was a disaster. Surprise, surprise. What do you think happened five, six years later? Yeah, real messy divorce, kids and all that stuff, right? Here's the point. When God convicts you of sin and tells you to repent, you have a binary choice. A binary choice. You either obey God or you disobey God. Period. Don't, I, used to, I talked to this guy. He says, I just can't get the victory over that sin. I said, baloney victory, it's disobedience. Don't sugarcoat your disobedience. It's either obey or not obey, right? What did Yoda say? Do or not do. There is no try. Right? Those of you who are Star Wars people. Well, in Scripture, it's real clear. You who know the truth, it's real simple. Obey or disobey. Don't lie to yourself about, well, God's going to give me some slack on this sin. No, he's not. You're his child. He wants you to be pure. And he has ways to get you pure. Yes? Most of the ways to get us pure are painful because he loves us. We're his children, right? Would you, would you swatch your kid if they couldn't get their hands out of the poison? Of course, if that's what it took to save their life because you love them. Jesus does that to us all the time. He says you have a choice. God will always give you the power to obey him. People say, well, I, I can't deal with this addiction or I can't deal with this sin. Yes, you can. You have the power. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person, the Trinity living. You have the power. It's a question of decision to obey. Now, when, 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 when we're told here, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, it means they continue to do sinful things. They refuse to repent, and it says they're going to get progressively worse. And the converse is true, too. It says, let him who is righteous practice righteousness. When you choose obedience, you become progressively more like Jesus. Yes? We become more and more holy. And when, well, obviously, when you get to eternity, there's no opportunity for change. It's locked in. That's why it's so sobering. We're told to choose carefully because Jesus promises in verse 12, Behold, I am coming. When? When? Quickly, soon, shortly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Here's the principle. Choose carefully and prayerfully because your conduct creates eternal consequences. Choose carefully and prayerfully because your conduct determines eternal consequences. You know, I always thought when he said my reward, he was just talking about the good stuff. I thought, well, a reward? I mean, that's only good, right, for obedience? No, it could be either good or bad, depending on behavior. What he's talking about is God already has specific rewards and retributions already planned for every person depending on their conduct. So reward here is not necessarily good. It's a consequence that could be good or bad depending on your behavior. And it says every man according to what he has done, every person. So God's judgment, good or bad for us, is individual, it's not collective. It's individual. God has a judgment, a reward, already, already there for each one of us by name because he knows us by name, right? 
And what that reward is depends on our choices. It says, according to what he has done, what you believe is revealed by how you behave. You can write that one down. What you believe is revealed by how you behave. I know, how you, I know what you believe. I just look at how you behave. It tells me that, right? Because we always act out our beliefs at that point. God is very fair. He says, everyone is going to receive the consequences of their own choice. You know what that means? You choose the consequences by your behavior. How many of you have experienced children who have felt that they could behave any way they wanted and they would not experience a bad consequence? <laughs> How many of you yourselves have ever behaved that way? Yeah, I'm, I'm at the head of that line. Yeah. God, I want to do behavior A, but I don't want to get the consequences of behavior A. I want the good consequences with the bad behavior. Is that how life works? Nope. Every choice already has a moral consequence attached to it. There's an old rule of thumb that says you can't pick up just one end of the stick, right? If you're going to pick the stick up, you're picking the whole stick up. If you pick up the choice on this end, you pick up the consequence on the other end. What's interesting is God says, you can choose. You can choose. I give you moral freedom to make those decisions. But God says, choose very carefully because I'm coming quickly and those choices last forever. Once we die, there are no do-overs. You don't get to say, ha, ha, I want a second chance. God says, well, I gave you 70 years worth of second chances. Maybe 80 years of second chances, right? Lots of opportunity in this life. See, even on, this, even on earth, choices have consequences, even on earth. But we do get some second chances here. That's God's grace. If you overeat on Thanksgiving, you may live another day. And you can choose to eat less that day, right? Now, a DUI has a little more heavier consequences, right? An abusive marriage, deciding to be involved in things that can be addictive, deciding to get involved with people that can be addictive. I mean, the consequences last longer. But in this life, we have opportunity to repent. One of the most sobering things, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. When he comes quickly, opportunity is over. That's it. For good or bad, he says, you've made your choices and here's the consequences. Now, when Jesus talks about rewards here, it's important to recognize we're not talking about salvation. Your salvation is not what you have done. It doesn't depend on what you have done. It depends on what Jesus has done, right? The, you know your only work you can do? We talk about good works and stuff. You know the only work you can do is to believe? That's it. Jesus said the only work you have is to believe. I've paid the penalty for your sin. There's no work you can do other than choose to trust Jesus to forgive your sins. It's the most important decision you'll ever make because it has eternal consequences. But for us in the room who are saved, we choose how to live after salvation, and God says there are consequences. Here's a fundamental truth. Every decision you make really has two outcomes, two motives. You can either choose to live for yourself or you can choose to live for Jesus. At the end of the day, that's it. If you look in your heart of hearts, all our decisions at the end of the day are usually, you can boil, I'd say the vast majority, if not all of them down to, is this motivated to exalt me 
Or is this decision motivated to exalt Jesus? If it's motivated to exalt me, do you know something? There's no reward for that. If it's a self-centered motivation, I don't get any rewards, 1 Corinthians 3. At the end of life, God rewards his children for faithful service to him and removes their rewards for service to self. Now, that's for Christians. For those who reject Jesus, they're not judged for rewards. They're judged for punishment, right? They've rejected Jesus. There's no salvation. If you reject Jesus, what you're basically saying is, I'm deciding to pay for my own sins. I'm going to pay for my own sins. And they will for eternity, right? That's the choice. It's not that we don't sin. It's that our sins are forgiven. And that's the key. That's the key. The one who's talking and telling this is the Alpha and the Omega, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is saying, I've got the authority to bring these rewards because I'm God. I have the authority to bring these rewards because I'm God. I was before all things, the beginning. I'm after all things, the end. It's comforting to know that even though we don't know what the future holds, Jesus does because he's the Lord of everything. You know, I know that there are those in this room who are really struggling with a lot of things with a bleak future, with difficulties, job losses, health issues, broken relationships, financial difficulties, death, illness. Our future from a human standpoint is very, very uncertain. We don't know who, what tomorrow holds, but what do we know? Who holds tomorrow? Jesus is saying, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I hold yesterday, I hold today, and I hold your tomorrow forever. Remember that old spiritual? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world. Right? Remember that? The third verse says he's got you and me, brother, in his hand. He's got you and me, sister, in his hand. You know, he's got your problems in his hands. When you get discouraged this week, I want you to sing this song and I want you to fill in the blanks. He's got the election in his hands. <laughs> Some of you are really struggling with that because you really think the people in Washington are in charge. Not, not, not. God moves the hearts of kings like water in a stream bed. He's got my job in his hands. He's got this country in his hands. He's got my health in his hands. He's got my children in his hands. He's got my grandchildren in his hands. He's got my spouse's exes. That's where they need to be. Satan wants you to believe that God's arms are not long enough to reach you. Wouldn't that be pitiful? A God with short arms. God that's too short to reach you. We serve a God with long arms. An x-ray vision. And a great heart. 
And you're not in good hands with Jesus, you're in God's hands with Jesus. This week, as you face these things, God's, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I have you and your problems and your hopes and your dreams, and I have this planet in my hands, and I've got a plan, and I'm coming back on my schedule. Trust me. Obey me. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates of the city. Wash their robes. He's just talking about the cleansing that comes through salvation, through Jesus Christ. Jesus forgives our sins and washes us clean. However, he says, not everyone's going to be washed clean because some are going to reject Christ. Some are not going to get into heaven because they don't want to be in heaven because they love their sin. No one gets to heaven except through Jesus. There is only one door to heaven. Who's the door? Jesus said, I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the water, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. We next get a little picture of those who are outside heaven. Verse 15. Outside the gates of heaven are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of what will keep you out of heaven. This is just a representative list of sins that disqualify those who practice them from entering into heaven. This refers to those who practice these behaviors without repentance or conscience because it reveals their heart that has rejected Jesus Christ. I find it interesting if you read the last phrase, that there are people who actually love deceit. How can it be that people would love sin? Yet when we look in the mirror, we're persuaded that there is part of us, our old nature, that loves sin, right? Say yes. Don't look at me with those innocent little, who you talking to, Brad Hannock, yeah? This is us, right? There's only one door to heaven, only one way in, and this, these behaviors are, are reveal the hearts of people that have rejected Christ. They refuse to surrender these sins to Christ because they refuse to surrender themselves. Just to give you an example, a dog, <clears throat> for those of you that wonder, a dog in the ancient world was not Fido. They were filth. They were considered scum. They were, they were not viewed with great favor. They were scavengers. They were feral. Even worse, Deuteronomy tells us that a dog in ancient Israel was a homosexual prostitute. A male homosexual prostitute was called a dog, right? Because dogs engage in behavior in public that probably should not be engaged in in public, right? You get the picture? That's what they're talking about. Sorcerers are people that use drugs to induce demonic contact. Immoral persons refers to sexual misconduct of all kinds. Murderers, idolaters, liars. These are all sins from people who continually practice these sinful behaviors and refuse to repent. Now, it's true that Christians have committed every single one of these sins. Yes? Every single one. Jesus said, if you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery. Well, sign me up. I mean, all of us fall on the list. If you're angry with your brother, it's the same as murdering them. So every single one of us are on this list. I want you to write down 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Rob, you can put the principle up too. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 
you should underline this and get this in your heart. Or do you not know, Paul is writing, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles shall inherit the kingdom of God. Underline verse 11. And such were some of you. He's talking to the church. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. It is not perfect people that get into heaven. It's only forgiven people. If it took perfection to get there, if it took sinlessness to get there, no one would get there. Amen? We are saved by grace and only grace. But we choose to ask for forgiveness or we choose to refuse forgiveness. We choose to accept Jesus Christ as payment for our sins or we choose to pay for our sins ourselves. The question is not whether you have behaved well enough to get into heaven because you can't behave yourself well enough to get into heaven. It takes perfection, right? Every single person fails that test. The only question is whether you have trusted Jesus to forgive your sins, wash you clean from your sin. And I know that I'm talking to largely a group of Christians. Okay, guess what? Do you get dirty during the day? I hope you took a shower this morning. <laughs> I hope you did. When you're spiritually dirty, what do you do? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us. Do we need cleansing every day? We do. That's what confession is. That's what the spiritual bar of soap is. So we're saved. We're going to heaven, but we still sin. God says, I want you clean every day. I don't want you to carry this sin around for a week or a month. Confess it every day. Confess it day, moment by moment, so that I can keep you spiritually clean all the time. And that decision for Christians is a very important one. It's not whether you're going to heaven. It's do you want to be clean today? Do you want to be clean now as opposed to carrying the sin around? Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you that these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So Jesus is saying, John, everything you've seen in this book, I'm responsible for. I was going to say something about I authorize this political ad, right? But Jesus is basically saying, everything you've seen, I'm the author of. The angel is the messenger. I've told the angel to deliver this to you, but I am the root and offspring of David. That means he's claiming to be God. He's the God-man. He's the root of David because he's the ancestor, right? He's God. He was created the heavens and the earth, and he's also the son of David because he was born of Mary, who is of the lineage of David. So he's making a claim to deity there for obvious reasons, the bright morning star. Verse 17, And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and that the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. I want you to take your pen, underline, three times, Three times, what's the word? Come. We serve a God that just boggles the imagination at the end of Revelation. He is still saying what? Come. Come. The invitation to salvation is throughout this book, despite all the judgments, with all the judgments, we hear the proclamation of the gospel over and over and over and over and over. You have 144,000 witnesses. You have, two witness, you have the two supernatural witnesses. You got an angel flying in midheaven. Always, this book is loaded with evangelism. God is a loving, reaching, sending God who wants a relationship with his people. 
And let the one who is thirsty come. Let him who wishes to take water of life without cost. So three times we hear the pleas over and over again. Now, the plea is twofold. The first plea is the spirit and the bride. The bride is the church saying, come, Lord Jesus, come back, come back, put an end to this mess, right? This planet's falling apart. End sin and suffering. Rule and reign over this planet. Fix this broken world. Come back and be Lord. We're a mess. We're tired of it. The older you get in the faith, the more you get tired of sin. And the more you get tired of sin in your life, that's part of what happens. You just get weary of battling sin. Have you ever been just tired of fighting your old nature? It's just exhausting. There are times I'm going, Lord, you know, take me home. I'm just, I'm tired. Sin never leaves me alone. It won't. When you're in this life, you're going to fight the battle until you go home. When you go home, the battle's over with, right? But so the plea is Jesus come back, put an end to this. It's also a plea for the lost to come and receive salvation. Come to the Lord Jesus. The offer is free. Now, it says, come and take the water that's free, the water of life. You know, what, you know what's required for you to take the water of life? Only one thing. You have to admit you're thirsty. You have to admit you're thirsty. And that you need saving. Amazingly, many people will refuse God's free gift. Can you imagine telling God that your gift of eternal life in your only begotten son is capiche? I don't need it. It staggers the imagination, and yet we know that the majority of people will do that. They'll tell Holy God, I don't need your free gift. I'm not thirsty. God says, look at you. You're in the middle of the Mojave Desert. You're almost beef jerky now. You're so dry, right? I mean, you're a mess. You're, you're maggot-filled, morally speaking. You're falling apart. Your life is a disaster. You're a car driving down the road. The battery's dead. The lights are out. Somebody hit your hood with a 20-pound sledgehammer. You got four flat tires. And you're going, I like my car the way it is. I don't need any help. And you know people like that, don't you? When you look at their lives objectively, you go, how much worse could it get? And they go, I'm fine. I'm doing just fine. You're a car wreck, right? You should be totaled. Matter of fact, you are totaled, morally speaking. You're totaled. It's like dying of thirst in the desert, and Jesus comes along and he gives you pure water, and you go, nope, I only drink my own water. I'd rather die. There are people that are going to say that all the way to hell because hell is populated with people that choose to be there. They've chosen to reject the water of life. They've chosen to reject the free gift of salvation and so their outcome is they spend eternity without him. Heartbreak. But this is one of the reasons why God tells us this because you and I have a mission. We are called to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. Amen? You want motivation to do it? Read this book. Verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. 
And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Here is a very simple principle, and yet we violate it all the time. Here's the principle. Don't add to or subtract from God's word. Just do what it says. God wrote this here because he's declaring that the Bible is his word and we are not to tamper with it. Satan will always tempt people to doubt God's word. The very first words we hear Satan say, the very first words out of his mouth are what? Indeed, has God said, sowing doubt in Eve's mind as to the goodness of God and the word of God. He's a liar, and Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning, and the first words you heard out of his mouth, he's lying, right? We are warned not to add to God's word or subtract God's word. You know why? God can speak for himself. He doesn't need any assistance, right? The cults and their false prophets have probably been the most adept at adding to God's word. False prophets, and there's lots of them, they write something and they claim that it's of divine origin and it's equal to or superior to Scripture. And anytime you add to God's word by human input, you know what you do? You corrupt it because we're sinful people. Do not add to God's word. Interesting, just for an example, I could give you hundreds. The Jehovah Witnesses Bible, New World Translation, adds only one little letter to John 1.1 and completely changes the meaning. The original Greek, John 1.1, describes Jesus Christ as follows. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. The Jehovah Witnesses who claim that Jesus is not divine translate John 1.1 to say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Big problem with that little letter, because if Jesus Christ is not God in the flesh, nobody gets to heaven. No one gets to heaven. It's life or death, serious to tamper with God's word. Now, most of us, most Christians, and most of the world will not literally write in additional words in God's word, in their Bibles. The most common form of adding to God's word is subjective interpretation. It's not studying God's word to discover what God intends to say. It's adding your opinion to what God said. And I see people do this all the time and it nauseates me. Well, I think what this passage means is X or Y or Z. In my opinion, I used to go to a class, it was called Sermon Discussion. The pastor would preach and everyone would come to the class afterwards and pool their ignorance and say, well, here's what I think this means. And I'm going, well, how much time have you put into studying this? Well, none, but th this is my opinion. That's called adding your opinion to God's word. Be real careful with that. Be real careful. Now, I'm not saying God tells me I need to obey this, and this might, might be my obedience. It may not be what you need to obey. That's application. But when you say, well, I think God wants to say this because I'm really not comfortable with what he really says, now you're adding to God's word. Do your homework and figure out one thing. God means what he says. God says what he means. Don't value your opinion more than you do God's opinion. 
That's adding to God's word. Now, subtracting is equally deadly. God's word tells people how to get to heaven. Amen? Subtracting from God's word is like removing an essential ingredient from a medical prescription that renders it toxic instead of beneficial. It can kill people, right? Jesus said every single word of the Bible is essential, not one yacht or one tittle. Now, most people don't erase words out of the Bible. I understand that. You know what they do? They subtract from God's word by neglecting it. They just fail to read it, right? If every word in God's word is essential, how many of us read every word in God's word at least once a year? I got some of you, okay? If God said all the words, then why don't we read all of them? People go, oh man, that Leviticus. I mean, man, that's, that's yeah, it's hard reading. Suck it up. <laughs> huh? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is, are, is it a mistake? I'll tell you, you want to know one classic example of subtracting from God's word. A few years ago, the Reader's Digest, God loved those people, decided they were going to put out a shortened, condensed version of the Bible. And they were going to decide what parts really were not essential. Now, that would be pretty obviously subtracting from God's word. If you fail to read everything God said, you're subtracting from God's word. I talk to people, well, that is so hard. Yeah? So do a little homework. I had a guy come to me once and he goes, Brad, in those eight verses, I never knew there was that much stuff. And I said, I didn't either until I studied it for 10 hours. It's there, right? It just takes some elbow grease. Be diligent, be diligent, be diligent. See, God says what he means and means what he says. So he says, I promise judgment, eternal judgment on people who tamper with his word. So the principle is, don't add to it, don't subtract it, don't neglect to it, don't opinionate over it. Understand it from God's perspective, and then what? Obey it. Obey it. Okay? Last two verses. He testifies to these things who says, yes, I am coming quickly. You hear the word quickly again three times. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Four times the word come. He says, I'm coming, I'm coming quickly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So you, we want to be living our life in light of Jesus' soon return. There's a passage that says, you don't want to be ashamed when Jesus shows up. You don't want to be surprised when he shows up. You want to be ready and waiting and paying attention. So have your face on the pain, looking for his return, and be living in light of that. Okay, let's do a brief summary and then Tom... Uh, are you coming up to do a prayer request? You might want to grab those clipboards or whoever's doing that and uh, get that started so you can come up when I get done summarizing here. In light of Jesus Christ's imminent return, we are called to do two things. Worship God and obey his word, which means you have to know his word in order to obey it. Number two, choose carefully and prayerfully because your conduct creates eternal consequences. I think sometimes we make choices and we go, well... I can ask God for forgiveness later. You can, but why would you want to pick up the scar tissue? Uh, come on, you'll be forgiven, but why would you want the scar tissue? Number three, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, it's not perfect people that get into heaven. It's only forgiven people. And number four, don't add to or subtract from God's word. Just do what it says. Okay, I love you. I'm going to tell you what the Lord says. And now that you know, do. do.